forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the Inner Armor Podcast. My name is Greg Smith, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. Timothy Royer, and we are talking about performing better and performing at our potential and using all the tools of neuroscience, physiology, and psychology to maximize our opportunities and overcome our challenges. And we're in the middle of an interesting little series of episodes right now, kind of seasonal, about going back to school. Uh, The academic year is beginning, and it's that time for so many of us to shift back from, you know, the summer break into the grind of school. And probably from the dawn of time, there's always been mixed feelings about that. But it is a time that puts a lot of stress on the system, stress on students, probably stress on parents and stress on educators as well. But that stress, right, is always an opportunity and a challenge, and it creates both of those. So in our last episode, we talked to Anil Bennett from Liberty University about the kinds of unique challenges that present themselves for college students going back in the fall. And today, we're going to talk about high schoolers. And in our next episode, we'll be talking about younger children at elementary age. And today, we have a very special guest, Gina Vandermulen of the ADHD Center of West Michigan. Today, Gina works as an academic coach, helping students to maximize their potential and overcome their challenges. And so, Doc, you have a relationship with Gina. You've known her for quite some time. So now that the formal CV is out of the way, do you want to take a a minute and introduce her personally? Yes. We're so glad to have Gina here. And I'm not supposed to like say I have like favorite clients over the years, but Gina's there. She's up there. Gina, you're such a hard worker and we've learned so much together, working together, known each other for a while. If you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience, kind of how our relationship started, uh, what you kind of did with us, but we learned so much from you in all your years. And we want to applaud you and celebrate you for what you've done for this population and teaching them. I love this group. I love all ages, but this is really kind of my, my spot is middle school, high school kids. Actually, you guys probably don't know this, but I filled in as a youth pastor. Amy and I did for oh about eight years before our kids came along. I love working with this group. And uh, Gina, this has immersed her life in this age group and has done so much to impact so many people's lives and set the trajectory in a positive direction. So can you just share, Gina, a little bit, tell the audience kind of who you are and um, how our paths ever crossed? Yes. Well, thank you for that introduction. I'm honored to be here. Honored that you asked me to join you. So yes, I think it was about maybe... 11 or 12 years ago when I sought out you, Dr. Warrior. And because I had all of a sudden started to have some anxiety and I wasn't sleeping very well. And I Mm. knew that sleeping was really important to brain health. I don't think I had the knowledge back then of why so much, but intuitively I knew that just something had shifted and I wanted to have a path forward that was going to be 
I guess at that point, not medic, not pharmaceutical. I, I knew that it, it just wasn't the Gina the way that I usually was. And I wanted to mm-hmm. figure out what was happening in my brain. And so I sought out you. And of course, I worked with your organization then. And we worked with, I did the brain training. I did the breathing work. I did the lots of different things. And then in the process, also learned from your materials in working with you and of course, your wife, Amy. And really sort of, I guess I would say it righted my ship in a way. Hmm. And, and I was able to sleep more effectively. And of course, with sleep comes so many other positive, you know, things again. And so it really did profoundly, my work with you really did profoundly affect my focus. And it really did. I always say it just kind of righted my shit that brought me back to, I knew I was. Awesome. Awesome. And then you started, I mean, you've been in education for a very long time, even at that point, and started to see maybe you looking at your kids that you're working with and maybe seeing some of these things. And so today we want to talk particularly about this age group. And I consider you an expert in this age group because your life has been immersed in it. And could you kind of maybe summarize for us what are some of the unique kind of developmental things that are going on at this stage from a teacher's perspective that you're seeing and for that stage of development, but also as they're, they're kind of starting the year off, they're coming in, you know, as a freshman, they may never have been at this school before, or as a senior, they're trying to think about, well, where's my life going? And could you kind of speak to that a little bit? And uh, what are the unique psychological, emotional, uh, developmental things that you see? Yeah, that's a big one. Um, yeah, it is. yeah, it's big. So I think when you think about freshmen coming in, really, it, although middle school does have its challenges in different teachers, I think high school is a whole new ball game, if you will, of mm-hmm. all of a sudden they, they're in a bigger building. A student might have six or seven teachers, um, all with different systems that have to be managed. And you're usually in a building with you know, up to 18 year olds and mm. you're a freshman. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot happening just with executive functions, if you will, and the ability to follow systems and to self-regulate and to understand uh, or organization even at that level. And I think in a, when I think of seniors, then I think of the stress of finding my path in life. There's a lot mm. of pressure on these students to feel, they feel like they have to know where they're going. They feel like they have to know where they're going to be in 10 years. They feel like they have to know exactly what they want to major in if they're going to college. And many of the students I taught felt like they had to go to college. They had to go to a four-year institution. And as you know, Doc, all brains are unique, right? Mm-hmm. No, I, I, yeah. And so if every brain is unique, it's, one of the questions is, so why do we maybe expect all brains to kind of do the same thing in school every day mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. way? Because when you think of the, the diverse brains, the unique brains, all kids have different strengths. All kids have different weaknesses. And so I think effective teaching and effective schools really help to look at each child's brain but then let's go to the reality of a teacher has 180 students in wow, a high school yeah. building. So how do you manage all those brains when 
you have certain expectations that you as a teacher need to meet as well. But so back to your question, I think that that in the early stages, it's coming in and really trying to manage all that's going on around me with just the academics and executive functions and following through and task initiation. And then as you move on, it's also the stress of where am I going in life? And then in that, in that developmental area, it's also the peer pressure, right? There's so much, the students feel like everyone's watching them. So they, they feel like a microscope is constantly on them with their clothing, with what they're carrying, with what they're doing, with their grades, you know, presentations in, in high school are so stressful because yeah. of the, the, the desire for peer uh, acceptance. So I think those are some of the main things I saw at that, at that age, at that age group. I, I'm just curious, and you know, I've got two experts here, but aren't these kinds of pressures or stresses sort of the timeline for them is compressed at this stage? So it's like dog years. The difference between a 44-year-old and a 46-year-old is not a lot, but what happens between 14 and 16 is a huge amount of development compressed into 24 months. And so aren't the kind of pressures that maybe we feel as adults just compressed and accelerated through this age? From a developmental psychologist perspective, absolutely, because there's some significant things that are going on just in neurologically how your brain is working. It's starting to move into more abstract reasoning, more theoretical kind of things. And you you have this egocentricity where you feel like everybody is looking at you. And that's not just because of high school. That's because of that stage that you're in, which actually makes makes you feel like you're standing on the stage all the time. Which then brings in this, well, who am I? Am I my parents? Am I my grandparents? Am I my older sister? And so you start to develop your identity. This is the time when that typically is going to happen, like you said, in this compressed time frame, where you're going to try on all these different hats. You know, am I this? Am I that? Do I identify with this group? Do I identify with this music? Am I the smart one in the class? Am I the one that's not so smart in there? And it's just all these different outfits or costumes that you're trying on to see, well, who am I? Now, even as adults in our 30s and 40s and 50s, we can still be stuck in that stage where we're still trying to develop our identity. But this is a very particular time from just the way the brain is developing. And you can actually see this on an EEG, how the brain starts to become more abstract and there's more alpha activity and those kind of things. But that's how I would say that, that it's very critical. Gina, what would you, what would you be seeing? Well, I I think what you said sort of goes along with what I was saying exactly when there's so much peer pressure really to, to fit in. And the students do, I liked when you said they feel like they're on the stage all the time. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's this constant pressure of, feeling watched and wanting to be accepted. And then I guess I would add on when students or of this age don't feel accepted, it's, it's an incredible emotion, Mm -hmm. right? The the, the emotions Mm -hmm. are very powerful of, Oh, I didn't fit in. And, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but then we get into the social media of now that stage 
is all the time and it's much bigger. And so I, I do see that. And, and the, something that I, that I saw a lot and see a lot in students is I think it's the desire to want to improve, but yet there's not always the strategy to know how to, like they're not Mm. sure what to do to improve. So they may be stuck in sort of a vortex of, of not doing well in school and maybe not feeling accepted, but they don't maybe have the ability yet to kind of get out of that on their own. Like you said, who are they? What's their identity and how are they able to sort of fix it on their own or what strategies do the adults in their lives need to give them to help them? Well, speaking of the adults, doesn't this create sort of a challenge for the adults in their lives, parents, t- you know, teachers, coaches, administrators, whatever, b- because this sort of compressed hyper development, right? Like, you know, I kind of said like dog years, you know, it's just everything is just sort of smooshed together and they're going through all of these emotional, psychological, developmental things from the outside, from those of us who are older, it kind of looks like a lot of drama. And so we can sometimes maybe mistakenly just write off those teenage experiences as drama. You're being overly dramatic when from the inside, it's a very real thing. Yeah. And if you look at it, I think neurologically what's happening to the brain where you go from this black and white, like don't touch the stove, you know, don't do this. And there's a lot of structure that it brings that decreases your anxiety and kind of keeps emotions at bay. But all of a sudden the brain kind of moves into this next stage where it starts to become very abstract in its thinking. It starts to think about, well, what are the reasons behind why I shouldn't touch the stove? You know, or what are the deeper meaning in life? What is the principle behind this policy? Right. And so we don't, as adults, our parents, we don't like that, you know, that challenge because it's like you're pushing up against and you've done so well with this. And now all of a sudden you're questioning, well, that question is a good thing because we don't want them to be robots. We want them to be their own developmental person identity wise. And I remember doing many, many years ago doing a paper on this in graduate school where they wanted us to pick a per- certain parenting style that was like the best for raising a child and write about it. And my answer was that parenting style better be changing developmentally because the brain is changing developmentally. And I need to be just as on my toes, especially during these fast years to think about what is my parenting style going to be? Because what was going on at eight years old is not going to work at 15 years old. It's just not going to happen because I'm dealing with a totally different brain. Man, we got a little bit sideways into development, but, but yeah, I mean, I see that there's, this isn't just drama, which, but it feels like that. Right. And it's also this, like, all of a sudden these emotions come in that are part of developing a personality that maybe haven't been there before, you know, dating and and a variety of these other things start to come into place that nobody maybe even really thought about before. But now it's like, wow, what is this emotion that I'm feeling and the need for success and to, to what am I going to do with my life? They may never even thought about that before. If we were to think about all the things you, the two of you have just been talking about in terms of development as sort of the canvas 
upon which is painted the learning journey, right? The background. So now talk about that learning journey, the challenges of educating and learning on that developmental canvas. I think one of the big things, one of the big challenges is the ability to deal with, for students, the ability to deal with challenges when things don't go their way and to develop Mm. that skill. So one of the things I think I saw a lot was what uh, learning is hard, right? Learning is difficult. And, and Dr. Warrior, you can correct me here if I'm not speaking neurologically correctly, but <laughs> adolescence, right, is a time when the, like one of those critical periods in, in brain development and the prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex is really, you know, developing, but not fully developed. So there, we're dealing with students who are, their brain is developing, they're at a critical point where their brain can learn, right? And, but they need experiences to do that. But some of those experiences might not always be positive. And what I mean by that is, Sometimes those learning challenges are necessary to grow, but a lot of times parents don't understand that discomfort can be okay. Mm. And so, and it, it, I, and I'm not talking about discomfort that's bad. I'm talking about, you know, maybe they didn't do as well on a test or they didn't do as well on an essay and they didn't understand the directions or maybe rushed through something. But sometimes helping our kids understand that yet yeah, learning is hard and it's going to be challenging but that's part of living and it's helping. And, and as parents, helping parents understand that this is part of helping their brain develop. It's part of helping them understand how to handle challenges. Absolutely. It's kind of like when they first walk, right? And they're, you know, we're help, keeping them from, you know, protecting them from falling. And we're anticipating that, okay, we don't really have that yet. Well, as we get into this abstract thinking and these different emotions and all these things going on, there's going to be some bumps on the way, but that's how you learn, right? Is you learn through those mistakes and you pick yourself up and you, you keep walking again. You don't just stop walking. When you fall down, you, you do that. And I think, you know, an educator like yourself knows how to one help the individual, but other times cheer them on or coach them to get up on yourself because you can do this. And I would wonder from your perspective, Gina, there's a lot of different emotions going on during this stage. And I know we can't like categorize them specifically, but what are the top two or three emotions that you tend to see kind of in this age group that are kind of like top that they're dealing with? Fear of failure. Okay. Fear. And I think, so this, this excitement for their future but it's like a cautious excitement. Hmm. Yeah. Because there's a lot coming in their future. They can't see it clearly. Mm-hmm. So they're excited about the independence, but then cautious about what does that mean? And maybe cautious isn't the right word. Maybe it's more of an, of a, almost an anxious excitement, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like an anticipatory stress, mm-hmm. like, I'm excited about this, but might I lose the game? <laughs> you, you know, it's kind of, I, th- I think of like an athlete that's thinking about the big game the next, you know, and it's coming, it's cool. We made the playoffs, but what happens if we lose, you know? So there's mixture in that. And yeah. when I say fear of failure, I feel like that is newer. When I, 30 years ago, kids didn't have as much fear yeah. of failure. 
Interesting. Um, 30 years ago, kids were more, students were more able to, I think, handle stressors. And I don't think it's this, I don't, I'm not saying that as these students are less able because of them. I think society has changed, parenting has changed, technology has changed. And the result of what, the result of that is a generation that is less able to manage stressors on their own and mm-hmm. even with help. It, there's just this huge struggle, which has led, you know, as we all know, to so much more depression and anxiety among these students. And so it became harder to teach because it was as if we as teachers were always dealing with sort of the underlying emotional issues with so many students. And, and of course, we care so much. And in order to learn, though, we have to have, you know, in order to get to that ability to learn how to write an essay, you have mm-hmm. to have these foundational things with the brain righted. If I could go back to what I said earlier, the ships need to be right, right? We need to, mm-hmm. we need to have a, a righted ship so that we're able to take in the cognitive information. So, Gina, as we look at the shifts that you have seen in the last couple of generations over your educational career, you're talking about external pressures. Because, I mean, the things that you guys are talking about from a developmental standpoint, those were true a thousand years ago. If we went back in time to ancient Rome and their kids were going back to school, they probably still had those kind of same brain development issues and maturation issues. But something is different today or has become different over the last 30 or 40 years in terms of the external factors, and it's probably a multi-factor thing that impacts student learning. What, what do you think some of those are? Well, I think one top of my list would be phones, cell phones. And at the age, mm-hmm. students get cell phones. And, and I would say screens in general, because, you know, whether it's a video game or their iPad, at, you know, when they... When, when kids go out to dinner and the parents shove an iPad in front of the kid, I, when I see that it just breaks my heart because of what mm-hmm. it's doing to them neurologically. I mean, kids can't be bored today. Let's just say, you know, kids don't have to mm-hmm. go out to dinner and just sit there and wait for their meal to come because they're always entertained. But bigger than that, cell phones are such a distraction for students. And it's, it's a distraction, obviously, in the classroom. Taking a cell phone from a student leads to panic attacks. Literally, we stopped taking phones from students. If they had them and they weren't supposed to have them, we just started, you know, whatever disciplinary policy in the past, you know, when they first came out, we would just take them away and bring them to the office. We couldn't do that anymore because kids could not handle having their phone taken away. So it's a, it's a basic distraction in school, but it's also, it, it is such And and I guess, Doc, maybe you could talk about this more, but it's such an addiction. Now, is it like a regular addiction? You know, the neuroscientists can debate that. But but the cell phones have opened up this world of social media and constant connection to, to, to their friends, to their parents, whether it's, you know, the student gets a grade he or she doesn't like in school. And so goes to the bathroom and texts or calls mom. And then before class is out, I have an email from mom about how did you give my kid that grade? You just made my kid really upset. So the, the student doesn't have to deal with the emotions. 
is what I'm trying to get at. There, there's the the phone is just this constant, like a like it's a it's just a constant need in a constant communication, so that the students don't have to manage emotions on their own. See, I can't think of, and of course, we're all a little bit older, but I can't think of anything in my life when I was that age, any possession, any object that possessed that sort of magical power in my life, right? I mean, you know, I grew up on the beach in California. You could take away my surfboard. You could take away my skateboard. You could take away whatever. But there was nothing that was really going to, right? It's, it's Doc, what is it about this object, this device that has this almost like magical power and influence why is that? Yeah, I mean, I would say for me back in when I was younger, if you took away the car keys, that would probably have been the one. Why is that? Because that was my freedom, my independence, you know, and there is something about that phone that becomes like this defense mechanism. And I've seen this as well, what Gene is talking about, where a, a child, adolescent, even young adult will go into almost a panic attack because their phone is taken away. And I think we have to frame it. We first have to look about, look at time is finite. Okay. Like my time in space and how I interact, there's only a certain amount of time that I have. And when you look at how much time is consumed by the phone, mathematically, I'm all about data all the time. Just mathematically, my mind says, well, if I'm adding, 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 what am I subtracting, 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 subtracting? And what you're subtracting is being present with someone, with a human face-to-face and looking them in the eye and feeling emotions and communicating back and forth, you're losing, you have a relationship, but it's a digital relationships. It's not a human flesh relationship, which with, and Gina, you alluded to this with human relationships, you have to filter. (laughs) You have to filter. I remember when uh, a number of years ago, uh, our company wanted me to start tweeting and getting on, Twitter. And I thought, this is going to be great. You know, I'm going to share all these wonderful insights and, you know, everything. And I started doing this and people started like, like immediately, you know, saying all these like negative things and critical things. I'm like, what is this? You know, like I went to school for a long time and studied this stuff. And I realized, oh, they're behind some like wall that they can do whatever they want and say whatever they want. And there's no consequence for that. And so there's a taking away of relationship. And taking away of that ability to pause and wait. I had something happen the other day where I was getting on a plane and I got this, you know, issue at work. I was very upset about something and I got on the plane and I didn't have any cell service. Right. So I had to go on a two and a half hour flight and not deal with this issue. Right. Guess what I was like when I landed two and a half hours later. I had calmed down. I'd come up with a more reasonable answer and it ended up not being an issue. Right. But if I'd used my phone and texted and sent the email right away, I probably would have been dealing with that situation for two days, but there's, 
with the phones, it's so immediate. It takes away our filter. That would be the other thing. So the phone becomes something that defines the self, right? I mean, it becomes this, it becomes this focus point through which the self is defined, but it's not really an authentic self, right? It's a sort of virtual self. Mm-hmm. And you might even, not even display your picture. It might be, you know, some type of avatar of yourself or use a filter to change how I look. And, you know, it's just, it's very interesting, but it, I think the place that the two things that get hit the most is our resilience. We, we cannot be resilient enough because we don't know how to pause and go through the tough times. And two is there's not that ability to be present because all five senses aren't engaged. You know, when I'm with somebody that really has meaning in my life and they're altering my life, that's not happening from a text. That's happening from a conversation where all five senses are engaged with all five senses of that person. And that becomes life-changing. And if you think of all the people that have changed your life, in a meaningful way, it probably wasn't through a text. It was probably through a face-to-face conversation, a walk on the beach or whatever it was uh, that where you you were present, right? And Doc, if I could add in there to bring it back to something you said earlier, when you lose all of what you just said, you lose your ability to kind of find out your identity. Ah, right. To bring it back to that. And at this age, kids are, students are really trying to figure out who they are. And so you don't find out who you are through social media and the number of likes you get and what you post and what other people are posting because what people post isn't real life. And so we have a generation of kids who are comparing themselves to an unrealistic reality, if you will, or an unrealistic life. And that's how they're forming, trying attempting to form an identity and they, I think they get lost. Mm -hmm. Makes it more complex. Definitely. Gina, before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit and you were sharing some of the things that you see impacting students and even parents in terms of their capacity to learn. And you identified one that you said is like the biggest thing that you see impacting students today. You want to share what that was? So I think the phones also, first of all, Sleep obviously is so foundational for the brain and and Doc, I'm sure you can jump in on this, but what I'm seeing in students is a lack of sleep and a lack of understanding on on I think parents and students, a lack of understanding on how really a lack of sleep affects our ability to learn, affects mm-hmm. our our ability to be healthy, how it impacts anxiety and depression how our mental health. And so telling students, you you guys, you need to get to sleep before 3 a.m. because you're getting up at six for school. They think they function fine. They'll say, oh, I do fine. I'm, I'm good. When in reality, their brain isn't good with three hours of sleep a night. And so sleep. And then I also will say, obviously for student athletes, they're pretty, they, they're, they exercise. But in general, for the general population, it's exercise. Mm -hmm. It's a lack of sleep and a lack of exercise. And of course, nutrition. But sleep is sleep is huge right now. And phones exacerbate that because they're on their phones 
late into the night. And, and sometimes it's video games, but they just, uh, they think going to bed at 12 or one is going to bed on time. Yeah. And helping educate them the importance of that. Sometimes the people in their life aren't modeling that for them. So that makes that worse. But the thing about sleep deprivation is you can become habituated to that. So like I have this happen all the time where I'll be speaking to a group of people, like let's rate our sleep one to 10, 10 being the best. And two people say, I'm, well, I slept a nine. And I said, okay, tonight let's actually measure your sleep. So we'll use medical grade polysomnograph, measure the sleep and find out that the one person was maybe an eight or nine, but the other person's like a two in their sleep quality, but they've become habituated to this is normal because you can function the body. You can still stay alive on four hours of sleep, but you haven't done anything for your brain. You've pretty much done everything for your body. And so now my brain can't learn as well. That's very well documented that we need that REM sleep, which is in the second stage, that last four hours of sleep. So total of eight is where you're going. And a lot of these at a, at a minimum for developing brains and even in elite athletes. I mean, if you would see some of the texts that I send some of my athletes after big games, someplace in the first sentence or two is going to be, okay, let's get some really good sleep the next three or four days, because that's the most important thing you can do to get ready for this playoff game or for the Super Bowl is to get sleep. And it's the same in the classroom. And if I just add in, yeah. and, and I think at this, at high school, when they're still in their parents' home, sleep has to be modeled and sleep has to be sort of an expectation because when students go off to college, they're on their own. And if they don't right. have a, if they don't have sleep hygiene or a sleep routine, they're going to be up late at night and it's not going to be healthy and it's not going to lead to success in college because the brain doesn't function well with no sleep or sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I think the modeling is huge. Like a lot of parents feel like they throw up their hands. I don't know what to do, but there are things you can be doing, you know, that are basic physiological, neurological help for your child. They might not agree with some things, but them seeing that you are committed to that, you're committed to exercise, you're committed to a good diet, you're committed to sleep. Those are some three big pillars of learning, you know, that are going to really set the tone. If the environment is poor exercise, poor nutrition, and poor sleep with sleep, you know, being the worst, um, that makes for a very poor learner over time. And that brings us to a whole nother issue. So as regular listeners to the podcast and those who've read the book know that these kinds of things, sleep, exercise, nutrition, cause shifts in our autonomic nervous system. And that triggers a whole set of sort of hardwired protocols in our body that you know we've been unpacking in various episodes and whatnot that create these kinds of stresses or exacerbate these kinds of stresses and cause other kinds of dis-ease and other kinds of disorders. So here's the thing, Gina, what kinds of things can be done to help regulate the autonomic nervous system to use some of the techniques that Doc has developed over the years to condition and strengthen our brains and our bodies and our minds to be able to cope with these challenges and to be able to roll with these changes? So the biggest thing for me that I'm going to say is breathing. Mm. 
and <laughs> and teaching students or your children or learners to you know and doc you'll jump in i'm sure but every so often you just take some belly breaths and be focused on how you're breathing i used to have my students do this before tests before i mm-hmm. handed out the test wow. okay let's just all stop you've been in five classes today What's going on? Let's just take a moment and just breathe. Just breathe mm-hmm. deeply. Take a minute. And and I think it's different than mindfulness. I'm not talking about mindfulness. I'm just talking about just breathing and being focused on getting oxygen to your brain. I think that's critical for students. And I think obviously sleep hygiene and Dr. Royer's programs can help with sleep and kind of diagnosing some of that stuff because sleep can be elusive, right? I mean, sleep mm-hmm. can be difficult. So It's using some of the, obviously breathing, but also some of the other strategies with nutrition and with habits of, you know, when are you sleeping? When are you getting up? What time are you going to, all those things, routine, sleep routine, sleep hygiene, I think are critical. And so I think for me, the most important thing was the breathing. Yeah. And I think what you're speaking to there is the breathing we can do, uh, we all do unconsciously. If you're listening to the podcast, you're breathing. But there's a conscious breath that can regulate the heart and what the heart's doing and set it in a more calm state or a cohesive state, which then sets the autonomic nervous system in a more focused but calm state and not a sympathetic fight-flight state or a parasympathetic uh, slow state. And so there's this optimization that oxygen does for that. And that is really the base of learning is you have to set the autonomic nervous system at center, at balance. If the autonomic nervous system is going too fast or too slow, the brain is not going to learn. Okay, If I'm running from a lion, you can try to teach me algebra all day long, and I'm not going to pay attention because I'm running from a lion, right? And let's be honest, some of these students are coming in the classroom, and they are running from lions. Their lives are difficult. And we have to meet some of their basic needs first to keep get them out of that life and death situation, right? And some of it is stuff that they're psychologically putting on themselves, how they're the what ifs and the what abouts that we've talked about. And some might be physiological things that put us in these fight flight states, but we have to get the system into balance. And the number way, number one way to do that is breathing. 90% of the brain's energy comes from oxygen. And if I'm not, before I educate, whether that's a coach, a teacher, whoever that is, a parent, getting the oxygen correct to the brain, I'm just going to be wasting my time because the person's either going too fast or too slow. And I got to set the ship (laughs) correct, right? Before it can sail. And that starts with breathing. Uh, And I think it's so awesome what you've done. You've shared stories with me, like people getting up to give speeches and having like panic attacks and you've taught them how to breathe. And it's so cool how you've integrated this stuff into your teaching over the years, first for yourself, but then to like share that that's a gift that will help them learn throughout their life with that. Well, what a great conversation. And it just seems like the time has slipped away. So as we're winding down here, I want to give doc and Gina the last word. And I think in that order, in terms of, If you were to say to a parent or an educator who's listening to this podcast, like a final takeaway, you know, you've got 
you know, one thing that you could take away from this so that you could make a better impact on the young people and the students in your life, what would be that one thing? Doc? I'm going to say two. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say the breathing, but two, being present for your teenager is you have to be present too. You can't ask them to be present if you're not present. And it's a tough life. It's a tough time many times developmentally for parents at this stage, right? You're kind of like mid-career-ish trying to get things done and it's busy. And now you got these teenagers who are turning into adults and it's getting really weird in the house. You know what? You guys need a walk. You need a talk. You need a meal with no cell phones. You need time. You know, I don't care how good the steak is. I need a decent sized piece of steak in order to get any nutrition from it. And that's how time is sometimes is we like, well, I spent, you know, 30 seconds with them on the drive to whatever. Uh, No, you need to model for them what presence is. I'm going to say two. Yeah, I'm going to say two also. Sorry. (laughs) I think one is for parents and any adult involved in children's lives to understand that before we can ask kids to learn, their brain has to be ready for it. So there's this foundation that the brain needs in its sleep, in its exercise, in its its nutrition, it's the breathing. We have to have the brain right in order to learn. And I think, secondly, we have to help our students understand that sometimes discomfort in learning is okay, that that's part of life. Safe discomfort, of course, but but we need to be okay with things not going our way. We need to be flexible when things don't go our way. But once again, kids are better able to do that. Students are better able to do that when their brain is rated, when their ship is rated. So, you know, which is why when a kid comes back from lunch, for example, and you can just see that they're upset about something, it doesn't make any sense to start teaching them writing we have to figure out what's happening neurologically so that we can help them dig into the learning. But their brain has to be right before they can learn. Wow, what great insights. So Gina, if we have any listeners who are saying, man, I'd really like to get some academic coaching for my student from that, <laughs> that sharp lady, where would they go to, uh, to your organization to, uh, to connect with you? So they would just go. Our website is the ADHD Center of West Michigan. And under that, they would just look at services and under academic coaching, I pop up. Fantastic. And Doc, as always, people can go to forgeinnerarmor.com. They can learn there more about the organizational services that we provide through Inner Armor and also the concierge individual services through Royer Neuroscience. They can order the book. Uh, which you can also find on Amazon.com, Forge Your Inner Armor, available in print, ebook, and audiobook. And stick with us next episode because we're going to be having this back to school conversation with an elementary school teacher talking about the challenges for young children and the developmental and oppor- learning opportunities. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, Doc. And thank you to your listeners. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe 
and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. <laughs>